The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Exodus 10, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. We covered this the last time that we studied in Exodus, but God is establishing a testimony. He is laying out a history and a heritage for his people. And he's doing it specifically that fathers and mothers may tell their children. And the children, when they grow up, may tell their children for generations to come that there would be a heritage <clears throat> passed on. And we talked about Deuteronomy 6 last time, that it is the responsibility of parents to pass on these mighty deeds of the Lord, the mighty acts and judgments, that one generation will tell of these mighty acts and deeds of judgment to the next. And in conjunction with the preaching that I did this morning, I just want to stop and ask, are you doing it? Fathers, are you gathering your families around you every day for a time of uh, family devotion, reading the scriptures, telling of the mighty deeds of the Lord? Are you doing it? Not just in theory. I mean, is it really happening? Do you really have a time every day, you who are in families, <clears throat> in which you gather around the word of God and which you read the scripture and which you pray? And if the answer is no, why not start tonight when you get home? Or tomorrow morning? Why don't you gather your family together and pray? <clears throat> Sorry. I think this is the special job of fathers, that they are called to be the priest of their family, to build, as it were, a spiritual family altar, and that they should gather their families around. So if you haven't been doing it, uh, take the time to do it every day, that you might commend uh, these mighty acts of the Lord to the next generation and set an example for them that they would do the same in their families when they grow up. But God has given us riches, hasn't he, through his mighty acts in history. The Exodus is ours too, isn't, he? isn't it? Even though we are Gentiles, these acts are the acts of our God, the Savior of our souls. And so we can share them. And so what God does in Exodus 10 to the Egyptians, taking away green vegetation through a plague of locusts, and taking away light, through the plague of darkness. This is our mighty God, and we should love him and worship him. Note also, as we discussed last time, that God has specifically ordained that Moses and Aaron go preach, and he has ordained that it will be ineffective. Go, for I have hardened Pharaoh's heart, but preach anyway. And so I think this is so important for us to understand. We can't fathom what God is doing. We can't know the end from the beginning. It is ours simply to obey. When he tells us to go and witness and the person rejects or is not interested in any way, you may wonder, what was that for? Why did I go? But it's not for us to question in that way. It's for us to go and to proclaim and to leave the results to him. Now, in verses 3 through 7, we see Moses and Aaron warning Pharaoh again. Verse 3, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. 
They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's official said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that, Egyptian, that Egypt is ruined? And so we see the grace of God, a warning. We've talked before about how God doesn't owe Pharaoh anything, doesn't owe him a warning, and yet he gives him a clear indication of what he's about to do. He also continues to uphold, even after all this time, he continues to uphold Pharaoh's right to rule. He's going to hold Pharaoh accountable for what he does with that right, but he upholds it. It is Pharaoh's to say that people may go. God is not going to work contrary to the authorities that he has established, but he is able to persuade, is he not? And so he is going to work within that structure that he has established. It is not God's will that there be anarchy on earth. He wants authority, and he upholds it. And so he says, let my people go, and he lets Pharaoh make the decision. Now, even Pharaoh's counselors at this point are getting in on the act. They're saying, don't you realize there's not much left of your reign? There's nothing left. It's all been destroyed. Let the people go. There's also, you notice, a cumulative effect of these plagues. I will strip away what little is left after the hail. There's not much left. The issue at this point is Pharaoh's pride. How long is he going to hold out? Can our hearts really be this stubborn? Can they really be this hard? The answer is yes. This is an expose on the human heart. It's an expose on my heart. Does it really take this much to persuade me to yield to God? Oh yes, this and more. It takes the indwelling work of the Spirit to transform my heart, or I never would have yielded to Christ. Never. It didn't matter how persuasive the proclamation. It wouldn't have mattered what happened in the circumstances of my life. I still would be holding out and resisting the gospel were it not for the internal transformation wrought by the Spirit. Notice also that God has the freedom as king of kings to work differently in different tyrants. God has a different track record with different tyrants. For example, Nebuchadnezzar was a great tyrant, was he not? If you don't worship the golden statue that I've set up, I'll throw you in a fiery furnace. Well, that's a tyrant of the first order. And yet God works differently in Nebuchadnezzar than he does in Pharaoh. He changed his mind into the mind of a beast, and after seven years, he granted Nebuchadnezzar repentance. And Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes, even in his beastly state, and repented. And God restored his sanity and his kingdom. Very neat work, working only on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen and amen. But he chose to do it that way with Nebuchadnezzar. Something different with Manasseh. Manasseh, that wicked and evil tyrant who passed his own son through fire, sacrificed him to Molech. And God uh, judged Manasseh. <clears throat> In 2 Chronicles 33, 9 and following, it says, But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. 
So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And so he exiles Manasseh and brings him to a point of extremity and Manasseh repents, humbles himself, and God hears his prayer and restores him. Then there's the case in Acts chapter 12 of Herod, the very one who had imprisoned Peter and was intending to kill him, as I alluded to earlier this evening. On the appointed day, King Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Immediately. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you will be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Immediately, he's dead. Where's the warning? He's had his warning. Time ran out. Immediately, he was dead. And so God has the freedom to deal differently with tyrants. He has the freedom to deal differently with sinners, too. We don't know how long we have. How can we test his patience? If God's calling on you to repent of sin, if he's calling on you to turn to Christ, if he's calling on you to do anything, do not harden your heart. If today you hear his voice, yield to him, follow him. Don't tempt him and test him. But God has a a wide array of responses, and he's not required to uh, answer for what he does because he's the king. And and in this case, he chooses to bring uh, two plagues, a plague of locusts and then later a plague of darkness. That's what he chooses to do. Now, what are locusts? Have you ever seen one? Well, they're big monster grasshoppers is what they are. And certain species have the ability to kind of ride on the wind, kind of fly. They can travel long distances. They can cross the Red Sea. They can swarm. And why they swarm is really kind of a mystery. For the most part, locusts operate independently. They just kind of eat and are eaten. That's kind of how it goes with locusts. But occasionally something happens, and they go from solitary grasshoppers, locusts, to suddenly they become what they call gregarious. They start to link together and a swarm is formed. And this happens from time to time. Now a locust swarm can vary from less than one square mile, listen, to several hundred square miles. Can you imagine several hundred square miles of locusts? There can be at least 40 million and sometimes as many as 80 million locust adults in each square mile of a swarm. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of locusts in a big swarm. And apparently this was a big swarm. Unlike any that had ever been seen before in the history of Egypt. They're able to fly with the wind. They can travel as much as 100 miles in a single day. They've been known to cross the Red Sea a distance of almost 200 miles without touching down. A desert locust adult can consume roughly its own weight in fresh food per day. That's about two grams every day. Now you think two grams isn't much, but I already told you how many locusts there were in a swarm. Two grams multiplied by hundreds and hundreds of millions of locusts, and you have nothing left. It's gone. I mean, there's nothing left. They don't miss anything. A very small part of an average swarm about one ton of locusts, eats the same amount of food in one day as 10 elephants. 
25 camels or 2,500 people. Wow. During this century, desert locust plagues occurred in 1926 to 1934, 1940 to 48, 49 to 63, 15 years of a locust plague, and uh, 1986 through 89. Now, when locusts swarm, they strip every living green thing from the earth. Moses and Aaron say that this plague will be unlike any plague they have experienced since the beginning of history. And so the locust comes. In verse 8, then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said, but just who will be going? Now we're going to read the fine print on the contract. It says, oh, by the way, who's going? Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. That's kind of the way I read it in context. He was obviously not blessing them, but desiring to hold them back. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Anger. Now, Pharaoh desires, as we mentioned before, to bring God to the bargaining table. Well, let's sit down and haggle here. Well, Pharaoh, in case you haven't noticed, you have nothing with which to haggle. You have no power. You have been given a command by God. You can obey or this will be the consequence. There's no, there's no dickering. There's no bargaining. No possibility that God's going to lessen or change his mind. This is what you must do. Or you will eat the fruit of your labor. That's all. But he wants to bargain. And God says, okay, bring the locusts. Time has come for the locusts. Pharaoh will do anything but bend the neck. Oh, Plead with God for a soft heart. Plead with God that your own neck wouldn't be like this. But it is, isn't it? And so is mine. We tend to be stiff in the neck a little bit. A little bit hard to yield to God and want to bargain with him and kind of make arrangements. But God doesn't do that. And in the end, Pharaoh's pride leads him to abuse the messengers. It's their fault. Clearly you are bent on evil. And he drives them out as though it's somehow their fault. All they're doing is faithfully proclaiming the message that God told them to bring. Just as Paul and Silas were beaten for preaching the gospel and as our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in China are beaten for proclaiming a simple message of repentance and faith. All right, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched his staff out over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Every Everything growing in the fields and the fruits on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Now, can you even imagine what that must have looked like? Totally stripped. It's terrifying how much damage can be done by a swarm of locusts. And this wasn't just any swarm, but the worst in the history of Egypt. Now, another book of the Bible describes a locust plague, the book of Joel. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what, uh, what it says in Joel 1. It says, what the locust swarm has left, 
the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Now this is a, a very vital principle, and that is the connection between human behavior and what happens in nature. There's a connection because God has set us in authority over this planet. And when we harden our hearts and rebel and sin just as Adam did, there's a, there's a price that's paid by the creation under us. And so Egypt is left in ruins because of, of Pharaoh's sin. Now, this locust plague will be repeated only in a, in a far greater sense spiritually with a demonic locust plague uh, de depicted in the book of Revelation. Revelation 9 and following. It says, Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Stop there. Very interesting. The locust swarm of Revelation 9 doesn't go after vegetation. What does it go after? People. And they are given power to torment them so that they will seek death and they will not be able to find it. This is what's yet to come in the future in the book of Revelation. And so the plague of locusts comes across. A judgment on Egypt, but also a foretaste of future judgment yet to come on the inhabitants of the earth. And unlike the locusts during the Exodus, these will not harm growing things, but those who rebel against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 16 through 20, we see the so-called repentance of Pharaoh. In my outline, it says, Pharaoh repents, with quotations around it. This is the pseudo-repentance of Pharaoh, be not deceived. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. That sounds pretty good. Let's sign him up for church membership. He's ready to go. He's yielded, right? He repents of his sin. He asks for prayer. Has he repented? Well, you know the answer. Verse 18, Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. Stop there. That's astonishing. The power of God. Instantly, the locust plague comes when the wind brings it. And instantly, it leaves when the wind carries it away. This is the power of God. Be afraid. Fear the Lord. God can do anything. God has power. This is our Heavenly Father. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And realize what God can do. Verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Pharaoh wastes little time at this point. He has faith enough to turn to Moses and Aaron. He fully believes in their power of prayer. He fully believes that God will answer their prayer. He knows that the answer is to get Moses and Aaron. He can't approach God himself. He knows it. He's got to get Moses and Aaron to pray. 
It seems like a conversion on the surface, but be not deceived. Confession of sin coupled with supposed faith in the Lord, repentance, begging for forgiveness. But the fact of the matter is his heart has not turned. He's still the same person. He's outwardly compelled, but not inwardly transformed. And it also says the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And we've talked about this before. But I think this is a specific hardening at this point to ensure the final plagues. Because God wants all ten plagues done. And it would seem at this point that enlightened self-interest might kick in. He said, enough is enough. There's nothing left. So go ahead and go. But he won't be permitted to do that. We still have two plagues to go. The last plague in the cycle of nine, which is unique, cycle of three, three, and three, and then the final plague different than all the others. This last of the nine is the plague of darkness, beginning at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they live. Now note again, as we've mentioned before, there is no warning this time. None. The plague just comes. There's no proclamation. It just comes. Always in the cycle of three, three, and three, the third plague, there's no warning. Plague number three, plague number six, plague number nine, there's no warning. It just comes. God doesn't owe this man a thing. He's just going to bring the plague of darkness. There's no more time to repent, no more warnings, no mercy, no gentleness in any way. Now, we've mentioned before that the plagues were direct attacks on Egypt's deities, their gods. And the highest Egyptian deity was Ra, the god of the sun. Only one perhaps higher on a day-to-day -day basis was Pharaoh himself. And the tenth plague will get to Pharaoh. But the ninth plague deals with Ra, the god of the sun. Now in Egyptian uh, beliefs, the forces of nature identified and parceled out to different deities who are responsible for them. And the power of the sun seems so much greater than any of them that he is given the kind of highest place. He's the king of all the deities, much like Zeus or Jupiter, the king of all of the Egyptian gods, Ra, the god of the sun. Pharaohs claim their legitimacy to their throne as direct descendants of Ra. And so the sun brings its light, but the sun brings its light at the command of a higher god, God himself, the one who created. And if God says, let there be light, well, there's light. But if God says, let there be no light, then there is no light. And darkness is taken. And darkness comes. Now, in Genesis 1-3, God says, let there be light. But in Isaiah 45, 5-7, turn there if you would, put your finger here in Exodus 10, and look at Isaiah 45. God has the power also to bring darkness. Isaiah 45 Verses 5 through 7. Some of you that are in Sunday school are learning this. Uh, Jenny was reciting this verse to me this morning, so I praise God for our Sunday school teachers that are teaching our children so well, Isaiah 45. But I'm going to begin at verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now look at verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. 
I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the God of the Bible. He brings light, and he's also able to bring darkness. He brings prosperity, and he can also bring disaster. And the greatest displays of that are in Exodus with these uh, plagues. And so this is a plague on light, a darkness that can be felt. No one could see anyone or leave his place for three days. This must have been incredible agony to the Egyptians. And I don't really know what it would have been like. What would it have felt like? To light a candle and not be able to see its light? I mean, right in front of your face? To have some kind of inky substance so that no light came into your eyes no matter what. We've never experienced anything like this at all. A darkness, it says, that could be felt. No one could see each other, so there was also a taking away of the gift of fellowship and friendship, the ability to communicate. I'm sure there must have been all kinds of, of damage done to bodies as people tripped over things or smashed into things, not knowing where they were. An agony because of the way that we rely on our eyes, the way we rely on light so that we can make it through this world safely. Immense pain. All commerce ended. Transportation ended. Any business ended. Barely able even to communicate. And yet in Israel, the one sovereignly chosen by God, what he calls his son, his firstborn, there's light. He permits light in, in Israel. And here we have, I think, the spiritual significance of darkness as a spiritual state. In Isaiah 8, 19 and following... It talks about the relationship between involvement in the occult and how it leads to this kind of darkness, a spiritual darkness. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Stop there. Was this not the religion of the Egyptians? Consulting the dead on behalf of the living, muttering priests and all kinds of spiritists and mediums. This is the kind of underworld religion that they had. And this is exactly what uh, they were involved in. Later, sadly, Israel was as well. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That is a picture of judgment on idolatrous Israel in that case because they were involved in a false religious system. The land covered with darkness, utter darkness, a gloom that could be felt. There it's happening spiritually. What's so beautiful is the very next chapter, Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in, in darkness, for a light has dawned, Jesus Christ. To us, a son has been born, and he will be called Wonderful Counsel, Mighty God. He is the light of the world. But into a land of darkness, Jesus was born. That's spiritual darkness. There's a clear connection here with Egypt, although in this case, a physical darkness. Their spiritual darkness, their bad religion, their mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, all that led them to darkness of heart. And now they have darkness physically, literally. And so it is that living sinful lives is like walking in darkness. 1 John 1, 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. 
1 John 2, 8, and 11, 8 through 11 says, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And so living a sinful life is like walking in darkness. But these Egyptians were physically walking in darkness. In the end, the spiritual significance is an act of judgment. In John 9, Jesus, after healing the man born blind, said this, For judgment I came into the world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And so this darkness, both physical and spiritual, is a judgment from God. It's a removal of that gift. When he said, let there be light, and there was light, he takes it away. He has that power. Now, there's going to be a future judgment, just like with the locusts, there's going to be a future judgment of darkness. In Revelation 16, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And so there will come a future judgment on earth, a judgment of darkness on the throne of the beast. But even more significant is what comes after that, and that is hell. Hell itself is frequently depicted as a place of utter darkness. In Matthew 8:12, Jesus said, The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Three times in Matthew's gospel, Hell is called a place of utter or outer darkness. And so now we come again to Mark Twain's breezy statement. Go to hell for the company and to heaven for the climate. Well, I ask you, is there going to be any fellowship in hell? Any possibility of relationship and of gaiety and celebration? None at all. That's the whole point of darkness. There's no relationship possible. All relationship is over. Just an individual sinner with his own agony. No possibility of fellowship whatsoever. That's what the darkness symbolizes. No input, no color, no beauty, nothing. Just torment. And so it says in verse 23 of Exodus 10, no one could see anyone or leave his place for three days. A place of absolute horror and pain. This plague was a horrible display of the total absence of God himself. A removal of God. You reject me, I will remove myself, and you will see that I, I myself am the source of all joy, all color, all beauty, all vegetation, all fruit, everything good comes from me. And in my presence is the fullness of joy and fruitfulness forevermore. And so he takes that away so that they would know. The final word from Isaiah 50, verse 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Now what God is saying there in Isaiah 50, verse 10 and 11 is, when the darkness comes over you and you know you're living in darkness, turn to me. Let me be your light. Repent. 
that I may be the light of the world for you. But if you choose instead to light your own torch, to have your own lantern, say, I'm going to fight this darkness my own way, you may succeed in one sense, but in the end, he said, you will receive this from me. You will lie down in torment, Isaiah 50, 10, and 11. So when, it come, when the time of darkness comes, that's the time to say, I need the Lord. I don't have any light in my life. I don't have any joy. I don't have any purpose. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know why I'm here. I need Christ. And at that point, you turn to him and repent, and he becomes your light, the light of the world. Verses 24 through 28, Pharaoh angrily relents. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and your herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burn offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.